Father, we thank you for the wideness of your mercy. Mercy that's so wide it even embraces us. We pray that you will help us to to grasp what you desire for us, to know and to, to be and to do through your word. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. You know, sometimes what we consider childish is actually quite profound. It's certainly true in a lot of areas of life. It's, it's certainly true in, in the biblical perspective of life. Just a, you know, a few reminders that Isaiah says to the, the people of Israel in their difficult time, and, and a little child will lead them. On that occasion when the disciples are shooing the children away from Jesus, he becomes indignant with them and says, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And it isn't much longer after that that, that Jesus hears his disciples arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And he takes a child and puts a child among them and takes a child in his arms and says, unless you change and become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And what we often consider things for children, things that are childish, are sometimes very profound in helping us understand God and who he is and what he wants from us and for us. I suspect that as we've been going through these different games every week, that maybe, maybe we have that kind of mindset about it being childish when we come to this game of shoots and ladders. Now, shoots and ladders is a, is a, it's a, it's a child's game. And um, I suspect that, um, you know, when you look at this game, it says uh, ages four to seven on the box why we think it's a child's game, I guess. And it says, an exciting up and down game for little people. So, I mean, it is a child's game. Now, I, I, I'm curious, how many of you have played Shoots and Ladders? A good majority of you. How many of you have played it within the last two years? You'd be amazed how many college students raised their hand in the second service, particularly when, when I asked that. I was surprised. I thought they'd say, oh, I don't play that game anymore. But it's still a favor for a lot of people. The game of shoots and ladders originated in India, as you see on the, on the screen, as the game of snakes and ladders. And you might imagine that in India they would use snakes, snakes instead of shoots. It, uh, it's based on morality, the Indian concept of the ladder to salvation, Some people think it goes back to the second century. Eventually, the game made its way to England and uh, was introduced in the United States by Milton Bradley in 1943. Now, compared to some of the other games that we have highlighted, there haven't been a a ton of versions of Shoots and Ladders, particularly in recent recent, uh, times. But there have been a number of versions through the years. And interestingly enough, there's a number of versions of this game that are are very... um, uh, spe- specific for different countries. But in this, in this country, besides the generic version, you have the Diego edition, 
And I'm not familiar with Diego and all of his friends, but he's an animated animal rescuer. And you have Dora the Explorer, and there's a retro version that comes with a collectible tin. You collect things. Uh, Shoots and Ladders, there's there's an older version of Shoots and Ladders Torah version. There's Shoots and Ladders Smurf version. There's a Snakes snakes and Ladders Disney version. And there's an Australian version of Snakes and Ladders. There's also a version that has circus characters on it. And there are all kinds of circus people and, and characters all over the board. There's also a version of Shoots and Ladders that is about skiing. And you ski down and you take the ski lift up. I suspect that that either inspired or was inspired by some of the Canadian-specific versions, one of which has you going down in toboggans. Makes sense if it comes from Canada, right? Um, the, the far north part of Canada. Well, Shoots and Ladders is a classic children's board game. You have two players, you have, you have grids on the board, typically 100 of them, numbered 1 through 100, and you make your way around the board. And if you land on a spot... That is the bottom of, of a ladder. You go up the ladder to the top, to the spot at the square at the top of the ladder. And if you land on a spot that the chute, you go down the chute to the spot where the chute ends. And you go around the board by using a spinner that has numbers one through six on it. You spin and you move and you either go, either stay on a, a spot that doesn't have a chute or ladder or you go up or down. And the simplicity of the game is um, really for children to learn how to count. And for children to learn about some things related to morality. Every version of the game has this one thing in common. The ladders and the chutes are related to deeds. Good deeds lead you up the ladders and bad deeds slide you down the chutes or down the snakes, depending on what version you're playing, or the toboggans. The Indian version of the game seems to have been invented by Hindu spiritual leaders to teach children about the effects of good deeds as opposed to bad deeds. And so the ladders are on squares that are named virtues of faith, reliability, generosity, knowledge, asceticism. And the squares of of evil with snakes are disobedience, vanity, vulgarity, theft, lying, drunkenness, debt, rage, greed, pride, murder, lust. And the moral of the game was that a person can attain salvation by performing good deeds, whereas doing evil brings you down and leads you to a lower place of rebirth in their view of reincarnation. In the, in the Indian version, the number of ladders was quite a few less than the number of snakes. And it was a reminder that treading the path of good is more difficult compared to committing sins. Probably the number 100 represented salvation for them. Well, the morality of the game probably appealed to the Victorians in England. They took the game. It was published in 1892. And and the game was pretty much the same, but they did change some of the vices and virtues, and they renamed them according to Victorian ideals. And so penitence and thrift and industry elevated a player up the ladder to squares labeled grace and fulfillment and success. While indolence and indulgence and disobedience slid a player down to poverty and illness and disgrace. Interestingly enough, when they put the game together in England, they equalized the ladders and the snakes. It gives you a perspective of how we hope life will be. And that's still a part of the game today. It's still about 
helping to learn morality. So, when you, when, for instance, when you're on square nine, go to the next slide. When you're on square nine, there's a picture of a little boy mowing the lawn, and the ladder goes up to 31 that shows him going to the circus. So the moral is, you mow the grass, you get to go to the circus. On the other hand, there is a, a square that has a little boy who's just broken a window playing baseball, and he, the, the chute goes down to him emptying his piggy bank to pay for it. Well, the story is, play too close to the house, and it costs you. There's also a little girl way at the top who's trying to sneak a cookie out of the cookie jar, and she, has, she uh, knocks the cookie jar off, breaks it, and slides down. Interestingly enough, that's the worst, the longest slide on the whole board. I'm guessing the game makers had something about cookies. Maybe they weren't allowed to have cookies when they were young or something. It intrigues me that that's the one they picked to be the worst that can happen to you. Now, you know, when you look at that, you think about that, there is no doubt that life is connected to our decisions. Life follows a pattern of cause and effect. In most cases, if you study for a test, you're going to do a lot better on that test than if you don't do anything to prepare for the test. If if you plant seeds and care for them in the ground, in most cases, you're going to have a more plentiful crop than if you don't do anything about them. And in most cases, if you refuse to do what your boss or or your parents or your your advisor or your counselor tells you, you will face consequences that you won't face if you just obey. Cause and effect is a part of life. It's also a biblical concept. Jesus promises, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you believe, you have eternal life. John says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, cause and effect. And after, after uh, Cain kills Abel, God comes to him and confronts him. And the result of that is that Cain is cursed. The ground will be hard for him. He will be driven from the land. The same thing happens to Adam and Eve when they sin in the garden. And Psalm 1 tells us that, that those who follow God will be blessed and those who reject God will be cursed. Cause and effect are ingrained into the natural order of the world that God has created. It's our lives. and Really, in that sense, the game is right. Certain actions lead to certain results. Interestingly, as this game moved, gained popularity in the West, not only did they follow the, follow the practice of, of evening out the ladders and chutes, in many of the versions, they actually lessened the chutes and increased the ladders. Because we like to think that life is more about getting good than about experiencing bad. Now, we're all for cause and effect when we do something good and we expect a reward. We're not quite as excited about it when we do something wrong and face the consequences. We love cause and effect when it rewards us. We're not so excited when we face the consequences. And there is, you know, there's a movement in in human nature, and certainly we see it in our culture, to eliminate the cause and effect of morality. And we want life to be all about just doing good, and we want to have, we we don't want to have to worry about consequences to our actions. And we often manipulate life to try to get that. 
The reality is God has created the world with cause and effect. One of the directions on the box says, uh, in one of the the game's directions, it says, naughty deeds slide you back. And another page it says, climb up with a good deed. But as true as cause and effect is, the reality of living in this world is that it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes, far too often, it's the good people who slide down. It's the bad people who climb up. And that's the rub of life that I think is often most difficult for us. That's when we start talking about injustice. Unfairness. And and the truth is, life isn't always fair. Because we're not always rewarded for doing good. And other people aren't always punished, face consequences for doing evil. Back in the 90s, Microsoft founder Bill Gates gave a speech at uh, Mount Whitney High School in Vasilia, California. And his speech was, was based on what he said were 11 rules for life that these students had not and probably wouldn't learn in school. And I won't go through all 11 of them, but um, here are a few of them were. Rule four, if you think your teacher is tough, wait till you get a boss. Rule six, if you mess up, it's not your parents' fault, so don't whine about your mistakes, learn from them. Rule seven, before you were born, your parents weren't as boring as they are now. They got that way from paying your bills, cleaning your clothes, listening to you talk about how cool you think you are. Rule 10 says, television is not real life. In real life, people have, actually have to leave the coffee shop and go to jobs. Rule 11, be nice to nerds. Chances are you'll end up working for one. But I was particularly intrigued by rule number one. It just very simply stated, life is not fair. Get used to it. What's interesting is though Bill Gates has been credited with this, it seems like research has shown that he didn't give this speech and he didn't write these rules. A guy named Charles Sykes wrote them in an op-ed piece in a San Diego newspaper. But even still, as it makes the rounds in emails and on the internet, more often than not, the credit goes to Bill Gates and not Charles Sykes. But as someone remarked, like the the man said, life isn't fair, so get used to it. (laughs) And it's not. And often that's where our, our most profound questions lie. Why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to them? Why is this happening at all? It isn't following cause and effect, and it's not fair. Just this Friday, in the Buffalo News, there's an article by Don Esmond. He told about a nurse at the Erie County home in Alden, who's driving home a couple of weeks after a tough shift. Joyce Diaspara is the head nurse at Unit S. It's a wing with about 50 patients, and she'd worked till 8 o'clock, five hours past her normal uh, leaving time of 3 o'clock. She had just left when through the darkness she saw him walking down Walden Avenue, a patient who had been brought to the county home after trying to kill his wife. He'd sneaked out and climbed a fence. She didn't have a cell phone to call for help, so she and she didn't really feel comfortable trying to 
wrestle this potential, potentially dangerous man into the car. So she drove back to the home, got a security guard, and they went back. They found the guy with a, a great deal of effort, got him in the car, and took him back to the home. Well, as you can well imagine, the next day, all of her coworkers were patting her on the back and telling her what a great thing she had done. It was so wonderful. A couple of days later, however, she was called into the office of the director of, of nursing at the home and was reprimanded and suspended one day without pay. And the reason was because she didn't follow the policy to the letter. The policy, they said, was very clear. She should have put the man in her vehicle and taken him back and not left to go get help. Never mind that the man was violent and that the security guard himself said that if he hadn't had the woman's help, he wouldn't have been able to get the man in the car. And the county home has said, well, there are other circumstances to the things to the story that we can't talk about. But the bottom line is that a woman tried to do something good and ended up paying for it. And she says probably she'll just likely retire rather than go back and work for the supervisor who suspended her. And once again, we are reminded life isn't fair. And I read that article and it just bugged me. As I mentioned last week, one of the fundamental rules of, of sorry is that you can't have more than one piece on any, on any one square at the same time. I mean, that's what makes the game sorry, is that you get to land on that square or you get a sorry card, you get to knock them off, send them back and say very politely, sorry. Shoots and ladders, you know, sorry is a cutthroat game, but shoots and ladders is not like that at all. Shoots and ladders, you can be on any square at any time, any number of people. It's a much more communal kind of game. And the ups and the downs of the board are very communal as well. And it reminds us that life is not just fair for us. Life isn't fair for everyone. When the economy goes sour, we're not the only ones that have to deal with that. Everybody deals with that. Probably some people in the world are dealing with it in far worse ways than we are. Jesus says it rains on the just and the unjust. We'd like to think that it... That it may, even if it rains on the just, it's a monsoon on the unjust. But Jesus says it's not the way life is. Life isn't always fair. That's what happens when you live in a fallen world with fallen people. But despite the, the apparent randomness and injustice that we often see in life, The thing we have to keep coming back to is that there is always grace in the middle of it. We may not understand it and we may not be able to explain it, but the one constant is that there is always grace. And in God's economy, life isn't always what it seems. When you're playing this game and you land on a chute, the first reaction is, oh man, and you're frustrated by that, irritated by that. But then let's say that you land on square number 28. And you go all the way up to number 84. The ironic thing is that the first time you passed passed square 28, you missed it. And you had a long way to go. But because you landed on a chute, maybe on square 47, it brought you down to 26. And then you spent a two and you go way up. But you never would have had that chance if you hadn't gone back some first. In God's economy, the life's ups and downs are not always what they seem. At the heart of that truth is that God is in control. As I mentioned about the election, 
There are some people who are saying this is the most important election in recent history. Some are saying the most important election ever. I'm not sure how people determine that. They all seem important to me. But people are saying that, and there's a lot of... and, And it is a significant election. It's the first election since 1952 in which the major candidates running, neither of them are incumbents in either the presidency or the vice presidency. And and it will be a historic election no matter what happens because either we will have the first president of color in the White House or we'll have the first female serve as vice president. But people are worried and you hear all kinds of rhetoric about it and, and, and people are saying some pretty strong things about each of the candidates depending on who you support and who you don't support. And there's a lot of of concern that you hear from people about what's going to happen depending on the outcome and a lot of doomsayers and a lot of wringing of hands. And I'm listening to all this and I can't help but think and wonder, isn't God still in control? Isn't God still on the throne? Is God's power limited by, by the person who lives in the White House or by the makeup of Congress or by who sits on the Supreme Court? I'm not implying the election isn't important. Or that we shouldn't care about who's elected. We ought not to care about the platforms or the people who are running for office. We need to be informed and we need to be interested and we need to be involved. But ultimately, as Christians, don't we live with peace and confidence that no matter who's elected, God's still in control? One of the ways that we confuse the ups and downs of life is thinking that that if you follow Christ, it all ought to be about ladders. If you're following Christ, you ought to always be going up. That life is simple and easy and it's all good. The song we sang a few minutes ago is The Widest in God's Mercy. It's a great song. It's one of my favorites. I love that, just that picture of there's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. If you're paying attention to the last verse, it's a little bit troublesome. Maybe some of us don't sing that verse when we read when we're going along. For the love of, uh, if our love were but more simple, we would take him at his word. That probably true, and our life would be all sunshine in the sweetness of our Lord. I suspect the author didn't mean that to come out the way we tend to see it. Maybe he did. But the truth is, I could take you to places all over the world where being a follower of Christ has made life far more difficult for people than choosing not to follow Christ. There's joy in following Christ and there is peace and confidence, but following Christ is not a ticket to an easy life. Following Christ doesn't mean that all of our problems are going to disappear. In fact, it may create more problems for us as we attempt to live for Christ in a fallen world with fallen people. But we often get confused thinking that it should all be about ladders. It should all be about going up. But in the Christian perspective of life's ups and downs, sometimes we go down because we live in a fallen world with fallen people and what people do it affects us. And sometimes it's, it's, there, we, we go down because people are opposing us as we follow Christ. I mean, it's certainly the case with Jesus. But it doesn't mean God isn't in control anymore. 
It doesn't mean that God is oblivious to our struggle. It does mean that God is with us in our struggle. And, and it does mean that God is willing to let us go through struggles because he has things to teach us and places to take us that we couldn't go were it not for the struggle. Let's be honest. It's in the valleys of life when we acknowledge more than ever how much we need God. It's in the struggles when we recognize our, our, our need to depend on God. And when life is, is going well, when, when, when life is easy, we have a human tendency to feel like, well, I can just handle this on my own right now. We want Jesus close, just not too close. But in the difficult times, those are the moments when God often does the greatest work in each of us. And you've seen it through the saints, through the ages. You've probably seen it in your own life. I love what Paul writes in in Philippians chapter 1 as he thinks not only about his own spiritual condition, but the condition of others. He says, I want to report to you, friends, that my imprisonment has had the opposite of its intended effect. Instead of being squelched, the message has prospered. Because all the soldiers and all the people who come into this place have realized that, that I'm a follower of Christ. and I've had a chance to tell them about Christ. And the Christians are being encouraged and strengthened and more brave and bold than ever before. Because I'm in chains. And sometimes what looks like a shoot or a snake might actually be something that's best for us. If you played the game blind to every spot on the board except the spot you were on, when you went to spin, what would you want? You want a six. I mean, you always want the highest number, right? If the only spot on the board you could see was the spot you were on, we're always hoping to get furthest along the fastest way, and so we're always looking to spin a six. And God may be saying to us, because I can see the board in ways that you can't, what you don't want is a six. What you want is a one. But what do we do? We keep saying, God, give me a six. I really want a six. And we beg and we pray and we ask him, we want a six, I want a six. And all the while he's saying, but a six isn't good for you. The one is what you want. Like, no, no, no. And and when we don't get the six, we complain and we whine. And we, we say God doesn't care about us. And it's because we think we know so much. And all we can see is one square and God sees the whole board. For instance, you're on square 50. And a 6 is going to put you on square 56, and that's going to take you backwards. But a 1 puts you on square 51, that's going to shoot you up to number 67. If you can't see the board, you don't know that. You just have to trust. Or maybe God's desire, maybe his desire for giving us a 6 is, is that we slide back so that we can get something better that we missed earlier. You know, you, if you're on square 77 and you hope for a 6, you're going you're gonna to end up going way past square 80. But if you get a 3, you're going to win. But when all you can see is your one little spot, all you can do is trust. And it's not insignificant that when you look across the top row, it's pretty treacherous. And we never 
outgrow. We never go far, so far on the journey that God doesn't want to do things for us that we might not understand. That there's not going to be opposition, that there's not going to be difficulties. They're always going to be there, and we're always going to have to learn to trust. We get so fearful about the things ahead, and we think we know best about what's ahead. Forgetting that it's God alone who knows what's best. It's a struggle for us. Some of you may be familiar with the New York Times bestseller book, The Shack. Very popular book right now. And and Christians give it a variety of reviews. Some love it, some hate it. Some think it has tremendous theological content. Some think it's filled with heresy. As I read the book, there were places where I thought, well, I think that needs to be explained. And other places where I thought, yeah, I think I'd want to argue about that point. But the gist of the book presents a powerful image of God. And there's one scene in which Mackenzie, about whom the story revolves, is having a discussion with God the Father. Mackenzie's struggling with with deep, deep pain of his daughter's death and, and the pain of living in this fallen world. And God the Father says to him, the real underlying flaw in your life, Mackenzie, is that you don't think I'm good. Because if you knew I was good and that everything, all the things of life, that it's all covered by my goodness, then while you might not understand what I'm doing, you would trust me. But you don't. And when we ponder the ups and downs of our lives and the pains and the joys and the struggles and the victories, that's our problem too. We don't believe deep down in that innermost place that God is good. And because we don't believe that, we're trying to control our lives, trying to tell God what to do, trying to manipulate life and trying to manipulate God. And all the while, he's simply saying, trust me. I only want what's best for you. I know you don't understand it in the moment. I know it might not make sense to you right now, but trust me. Because I'm good. And that's why James can come say to his to the readers of his letter, "Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father above." And it's because every good and perfect gift comes from God that James can say at the beginning of chapter 1, count it all joy, whatever happens to you. Because you're in the hands of the one who loves you and who is good. I don't know the exact struggle of your life, but I suspect there are ups and downs that you're dealing with today. They weigh upon you and they're difficult to understand and they're frustrating and they're eating away at you. In the midst of them, can you believe that God is still in control? Can you believe that God is good? And can you believe that because God is good, He can be trusted? Will you trust Him?
Father, in this moment of silence, we lay before you the burden on our heart, the struggle we don't understand, and declare that because you are good, we trust you. Father, thank you for loving us. We praise you as the only God who is good. And we declare our desire to trust you. Through Christ Jesus, amen.